Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about First Baptist Church of Silva, please visit firstbaptistsilva.com. I didn't like the song, but I was forced to sing it. I bet some of you all had to sing it too. I'm going to ask some of you all to go back in time with me. Oh, mid to late 20th century, it was a song you would have sung in children's Sunday school, perhaps vacation Bible school, possibly RAs and GAs. It went a little something like this. Deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide, deep and wide, deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. I didn't like it then. I don't like it now. Now, in full disclosure, as a child, I'm not so certain I knew what deep and wide meant. And so when we did the hand motions, I was hopelessly lost. And then it got even trickier. Do you remember this? Some sadistic teacher would tell us to to replace words with just motions. And you would go, mm and mm, mm and mm. There's a mm and mm, mm. Someone thought this was a good idea. But even to this day, y'all, I didn't know what the song was about. What's deep? And what's wide? A fountain? A fountain of what? A chocolate fountain like the time we were at a wedding reception? That was not a deep and wide chocolate fountain. It ran out after the first 10 minutes. What are they talking about? I would wonder. Not entirely sure, but I might have a better idea today. Because after reading this ancient letter from Paul to Timothy, this song came to mind. Because it occurred to me that as Paul talks about prayer, he's asking us for our prayers to, wait for it, be deep and wide. First of all, he says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made. That's a lot of words for prayer. There's a reason for that. At this time, historically, the Jewish people had a worship playbook. It was very clear. It was rooted, of course, in temple worship in Jerusalem. So it's not surprisingly, therefore, that the early church, primarily Jewish Christians and then Gentile Christians, would adopt the same rhythms and patterns of the ancient Hebrew people. And prayer life was not only something that you did individually, it was something you did corporately. It was something you you did in private, and it was something that you did when you gathered together. There was power, particularly, in praying together. Now, to pray as Jesus would have prayed, 
means that we would pray upon a mountain as Christ prayed. In times of trouble in the Garden of Gethsemane, as in fact Jesus prayed. We would need to pray vulnerably, honestly, as Jesus did. Let this cup, this way forward, pass from me, God. I don't want it, but your will, not mine. That's what it looks like to pray as Jesus prayed. But we would be remiss if we didn't lift up the fact that good Jewish brothers and sisters in the faith would pray three times a day probably taken from King David, who in Psalm 55 says, Evening, morning, and at noon, I offer and utter my prayers. And also, Daniel, yeah, Daniel in the lion's den, in exile, he himself also would get down on his knees three times a day to pray. It's important to acknowledge this because their prayer life is not exactly like ours. The prayers that Paul is encouraging is not of the variety, oh, that's hard, I will be praying for you. Nor is it the kind of prayers that we might scream out or utter on our way to the post office before it closes. Paul uses four words for prayer here when he could have just used one. And there's a reason for that. Because he identifies four different kinds of prayer. So we'll begin with the first one, supplications. If you look at the Greek word, the original Greek word that Paul chose to use suggests prayer requests. That is, the needs, even desires that individuals have. It's what we wish for ourselves and for others. Supplications, check. The next is a very generic term for prayers. The Greek here suggests that this is a word for prayer that is throughout the New Testament. When they talk about prayer, they talk about this Greek word. For Paul, however, it does delineate and differentiate between the private prayers. The generic word for prayer suggests a corporate prayer when you gathered together. This is a prayer that you share with others. The third expression of prayer is tricky. The Greek word that's mentioned here is used only in this location. So if you look at the entirety of the New Testament, the use of this Greek word is used only here. And it doesn't exactly match up with intercessions. It's not far off, but it's not a great translation. The word essentially means petition, but it's more than just a petition or asking for something to happen. It has the power of going before a king. We remember the story of Esther and being given permission, he'd let down. His scepter enabling her to come before the king. This word for prayer is a sense, has a sense of boldness to it. That we are afforded and given the opportunity to come before God. So you better use your moment and your power wisely. Because you have God's attention. 
The last expression of prayer is thanksgiving, which, of course, is acknowledging that which God has given us. At one level, this is an unremarkable piece of instruction. We know as people of faith that prayer is important. And yet, this passage takes on a very different character when you discover that these prayers are not intended for your own best interest. Or so we might think. Listen carefully as Paul continues. I urge the supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone. Our prayers are not intended to be just for ourselves. Our prayers are intended to point us outward. There was once a father who wanted to develop his prayer life, so he decided that he would get up early before anybody else in his house would get up, and and he'd have quiet time to read this book to equip him to pray for others. But one morning, he was clumsy in his getting up, and he made all kinds of noise, awakening the family. His little girls came down and asked him gently, Dad, what are, what are you doing? Stop it. Be quiet, he barked at them. Don't bother me. Can't you see what I'm doing? Big old fat tears appeared in these girls' eyes, and, and they shrunk from his study and went and asked the mom and, and said, What's the matter with Daddy? Mother calmly replied, oh, he's learning how to be a good Christian so that he can do a better job of loving others. Our prayers are intended to point us outward. So our prayers cannot be shallow. So in addition to our prayers needing to be deep, our prayers must be wide Again, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for everyone, for kings and all who are in high positions. Yes, this is where it gets more interesting. Paul is directing followers of Jesus to pray for those in authority, kings and all who are in high positions. Y'all, Paul is not trying to get political here, but he most certainly is. But it's important to remember that Paul did not belong to a democracy. He is not advocating for one way or another. The authorities at this day and age are the Roman Empire, and the emperor during this time would have been Nero a terrible despot of a leader who is actively persecuting Jews and Christians. And Paul wants Timothy and his congregation to pray for them? Is Paul certifiable? Maybe, but he's also being Christ-like. Because Paul is encouraging the church to love their neighbors and to pray for any and for all, and especially lifting up one's enemies. Which raises the question for us, why? 
The answer should not be hard for us. He is living out the agape love that we find in Jesus, a steadfast love and regard for other people. But even so, I want us to linger for a moment on the Christian's response to those in authority. Paul is thinking practically here. He's pragmatic. He knows that if the powers that be are disrupted, so too will their ability to spread the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to think about it. The kings and others in high political positions are the ones who provide social stability, who provide legal protection, who provide the safeguarding from frequent foreign invasions, local pirates, and regional insurgencies. Some of us know it as the Pax Romana, literally the peace of Rome. Because of the Roman Empire, good, bad, and otherwise, it not only helped, it assisted in the ability for the good news of Jesus Christ to be transmitted to the masses. The highways for communication were the seas, and Rome ruled not only the land, but also the seas. Because there was peace or relative peace in the land, it enabled for roads to connect communities and for mail to be delivered. Without these things, the news of Jesus Christ and his saving power could not and would not have been extended to others. Therefore, he thinks, why not offer supplications, prayers and thanksgivings for them as well as the welfare of the community. So Paul makes certain that the prayers that we offer are not just for ourselves, but are for any and for all, and especially for those in authority. You're not about to do it, are you? Are you? There's no way in the world you're going to pray for those you politically despise. Oh, we pray for them, all right. We pray for our political enemies to meet their quick doom. We pray for and against President Obama, we pray for and against President Trump, we pray for and against members of Congress, the Senate, our local councils and assemblies. We are not about to do what Paul is telling us to do here. And brothers and sisters, that is a problem. Everyone wants you to pick a side. And truth be known, it may be in your or our best interest. Pick a side. Become an advocate for it. Promote your side. Demonize the other side. Do everything in your power 
to become an advocate for that which you believe is best. That's all well and fine, and in fact may very much well be a part of the democratic process, but brothers and sisters, it is not of Christ. Our recent infatuation with fundamentalism, that is not a theology, it's a psychology, it's a way of thinking. Fundamentalism is a poison that suggests that I am right and you are wrong. There is fundamentalism on the right and there is fundamentalism on the left. And increasingly, there is no room in the middle. And that is problematic. Because Christ Jesus was in the middle. If you don't think that the powers that be tried to co-opt Jesus during his day and age, you need to reread your Gospels. Jesus made enemies on the left and the right and in all directions because he did not conform to what they wished and wanted. Remember, Jesus' ministry began with the greatest temptation of them all, temporal power, to have power over the kingdoms of the earth. And he refused it because he knew that the kingdom of God looked like service to others. It looked like love for one's enemies. And it got him killed. So pardon me, when Paul suggests that we pray for the authorities, if we didn't put them there, we're not about to pray for them. Or if so, we'll pray wrath. That is not of Christ. And as your pastor, I must tell you so. As your pastor, I will strive to find a place that encourages thoughtfulness and good questions for any and for all because there is good in any and all. And if we allow ourselves to be co-opted and to become advocates for one side at the exclusion of the other, it damages our churches, it damages our community, it damages our witness. And I beg you in the name of Jesus Christ to dedicate yourself to listening to one another of loving one another, of not terminating relationships with those who may see the world differently. Becoming an activist for Christ means building bridges and refusing to allow us to drift apart. So when Paul tells the church 20 centuries ago to pray for those who are persecuting them, he's being Christ-like. Pray for all, he tells them. Pray for everyone. No one is to be left out. Our prayers should not be limited, just as our love for one another should not be limited. Our prayers should be deep and boundless and is consistent with Jesus' admonition to love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. 
the ancient Jewish rabbis tell the story of Father Abraham who once invited a beggar to his tent for a meal. So when Abraham offered grace, this beggar began to curse God, declaring that he could not bear to hear his name. Well, Abraham was so angry that he kicked the man out of his tent. That evening over prayers, God said to him, this man has cursed and reviled me for 50 years, and yet I still gave him food to eat every day. Could you have not put up with him for a single meal? Paul has said this before, y'all. In Romans 12, he tells the church there in Rome to bless those who persecute them and to bless and do not curse them. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, in the early 20th century, found himself embroiled in Germany over the issue of Christian nationalism, where the state sought to co-opt the message of God in Jesus Christ. And as we know, it led to any number of evils. Bonhoeffer knew how important it was for the church to pray for one another and for others. He said, a Christian fellowship lives and exists by the prayers of its members for one another, or it collapses. And he notices a strange thing when he prays for others. He says, I can no longer condemn or hate a brother for whom I pray, no matter how much trouble he causes me. In other words, when we pray for those whom we dislike, who persecute us, who we disagree with, that prayer changes us. You know, the reason why Paul uses four words for prayer instead of one is because our prayers advance the gospel. Paul sees prayer as a way for everyone to be saved. For there's one God, he says. There's also one mediator between God and humankind, Christ Jesus himself human, who gave himself a ransom for all. This was attested at the right time. This idea of Jesus as mediator should be instructive to us. This image of a God who became like us and that then stands in between God and ourselves, bridging the gap, it suggests restoration. And it's what the role of the church should be at a time when we find ourselves increasingly on other sides of everything. We may not feel is that we can love our enemies, which is precisely why we must pray for them. And when we do, we will be changed. And we'll find ourselves able to love the fundamentalist on the left or the right that we cannot stand to be in our midst. Prayer is a prerequisite for evangelism. We pray for others to advance the kingdom. So at the end of the section, Paul claims that this is why he was appointed a herald and an apostle. He doubles down. He says, y'all, this is the truth. I'm not lying. This is why he is a teacher of the faith. Which is remarkable, isn't it? That God would use his very own enemy, Saul, who was a murderer and a terrorist of the faith, he would use and call Saul to be the bridge and to advocate 
for harmony and unity in the midst of such division. Deep and wide. (laughs) Deep and wide. There's a fountain flowing deep and wide. It's taken me many years, but I think I know what that fountain is. The fountain is the prayers of God's people and it provides the life-changing nourishment that our world needs. Our prayers are what should be deep and wide because let's face it, y'all, if our prayer life is shallow and narrow, we will be too. Let us pray. God, the world wants to tear us apart, to choose and pick sides, to go on crusades to eliminate the other. God, make us more Christ-like. Help us to find ourselves as bridge builders, as those who seek restoration, who place you above all. God, unite us in prayer out of love for one another. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray these things. Amen.